We go through whole books of the Bible, and we are on week, um, this will be week 39 of 68 weeks through the book of Acts. So uh, we don't do mini-series, obviously. We do mega-series uh, through whole books, and this is week 39 for us. And this is actually the third week that we are in Acts chapter 16. This is the last and final message uh, for Acts chapter 16. And we're going to look at 16 through 34, asking what is the urgent question. The urgent question. It's a message for everybody. It's not just tailored specifically because we got Mad Talk with staff here this morning. It's a message that speaks to us. What is the most urgent question and what is the response to the question? Mad Talk with staff, specifically for you, as you hear this message, I want you to process it. Because this is going to be not just your summer, but this is your life calling of sharing what is responding to this, this urgent question to everybody who asks, what, what must I do to be saved? But specifically this summer, as you are wrestling with how do you share the gospel to children, to adults, to parents, this is a question that we've got to be able to ask and be able to answer. So follow with me. Acts 16. 16 through 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes, I think most of us, if not all of us, get stung because we don't ask the right questions. We don't ask the right questions. We think they're important questions, but we don't ask the right questions. We're so focused on on things that we think are important to us, that are, are critical to us, that we fail to ask the really urgent and most important question. The things that really matter. In our text this morning, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas the most important question, the most urgent question that anybody can possibly ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, for some of you, this might not strike you as a really urgent question, right? Why don't you put it up on a blank, blank screen there, buddy? You might think that the most important question, depending on your your place in life, is can I get a boyfriend? Can I ever find a wife? It might be how in the world am I ever going to pay off these student loans? Will I ever really get a job, especially in these markets? How do I deal with a difficult marriage, a a spouse who just doesn't seem to get it? How do I communicate with my rebellious teenager? And while these are really important questions, none are nearly as urgent as the question, what must I do to be saved? For the Philippian jailer, this was not just an academic question. It wasn't just an academic question. He was awakened by a powerful earthquake that shook the very foundations of this jail. And if it's never happened to me, we've had, I remember a few years back, we had an earthquake tremor coming through Illinois, and I felt it, but it was nothing compared to what this man felt. And I am sure there was an adrenaline rush that went through his body and he was buzzing with, oh dear God, what is happening? And when he rushed out there, what did he see? It confirmed his worst nightmare of all. The prison doors had been thrown open. Now you gotta understand something about this this jailer. According to history, what they would do is they would take retired centurions, men who were leathered with war. They were brutal men who had retired. And they would take them from one degree of military work and put them in charge of prisons. Because these men knew what it meant to defend, to extract any kind of torture, to bring control. But this man, he came rushing in, and his worst nightmares were confirmed. The doors were open. And he knew exactly what this meant. 
Assuming the worst that they were all gone, instant death would have been better for him than anything else. Instant death. So he was ready to fall on his sword when he heard the voice from the inside. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. We are all here. And he couldn't believe his ears. Calling for the lights. They brought in the lights. And it was confirmed. Every one of the prisoners was in there. And overwhelmed with what he had heard and what had just happened, he fell at the feet of Paul and Silas. We don't know what words were exchanged exactly at that point. Probably as Peter was with Cornelius, Peter, Peter said, you know, get up. Don't worship me. I, I'm just merely a man. Don't get on your knees before me. Stand up. Perhaps Paul had explained that the living God whom he served was behind the earthquake and the prisoners not leaving. Who knows? But these events had made the jailer see that he must come to terms with the God proclaimed by Paul and Silas. He had to come to terms. He knew that the servant girl had been shouting all over town that these are servants of the Most High God and they're proclaiming the way of salvation. So after he brought them out of prison, out of prison, he asked the most urgent question. What, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? His life was already saved because the prisoners were all there. He didn't have to take his life. He was taking it to the next step. What must I do to truly be saved? Lost is a frightening word. It's a frightening word. I don't know if you've ever experienced truly being lost. I remember being with my mother and being lost in a, a large store. And the fear that comes through a little boy's body when you are lost and it's just strangers around you, it is absolutely terrifying. Or if a parent loses a child in a mall. Fear kicks in high gear. A mother will become like a ravaged animal finding that child. The reality is even more frightening than being lost at a mall or a store is being lost spiritually. Separated from God. And ironically, many and most lost people have no clue that they're even lost. They're walking around, walking dead. They're going through life pursuing all kinds of things in their lives that, that make it, makes their life enjoyable. And they're oblivious to their, the impending reality and the fact that they are going to stand before the judge of the entire world. But whether they feel it or know it or not, it is a fact. They are lost. The Bible declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is, help me out, death. The wages of sin is death, which means absolute eternal separation from God. The Philippian jailer was in the dark until the lights could be brought in to see the prison. Darkness is just another one of those biblical pictures of being alienated from God. People who are lost and are in the dark need help. 
They can't see where they are going. And they don't know the way, even if they can see. God must make a person aware of his or her desperate condition so that he or she can cry out for help and say, what must I do to be saved? The reality is, is that we are all, all of us, hang on to life by a thread. And I don't know if we all really get that. Just this past week, dear friends of mine from college, their father died. Age of 67. Healthy man. Like that. Life snuffed. Even from our own Manitoba staff. My wife's, my tenure here, Nathan's tenure here, we have seen staff members pass away. All of us, all of our lives hang by a thread. We are all so frail. And yet we think for some reason we are invincible, don't we? I'm going to just keep on living and keep on going and keep on going. I'm going to make it. I don't see the, the need for any kind of change in my life. I'm Superman. My back might hurt every once in a while because I'm getting old, but I'm going to keep on making it. No one, not even one of us, is guaranteed to be alive tomorrow morning. Novelist John Grisham said that when he was in law school, he got a call from one of his best friends in college. And they got together for lunch, and his, his friend told Grisham that he had terminal cancer. Terminal cancer. Grisham was stunned. And he asked his friend, what do you do when you realize that you're about to die? His friend re replied, it's real simple. You get things right with God. And you spend as much time with those that you love as you can. And then you settle up with everyone else. These words stuck with John Grisham at the age of 25 and let a lasting impression on his life. The urgent question is urgent because apart from Jesus Christ, all of us are lost. All of us. And it's because we are just a breath away from eternity. Manitoba staff, you are going to have kids full of energy. You are going to go home more exhausted than they are because they are packed with energy. How many of you are new to Manitoba? Get ready. You're going to go and sleep hard each night. But these children are not invincible. They're just a breath away from the end of their life. One more breath. It's an urgent question. It's, it's, it's an urgent question because nothing else will matter ultimately when we stand before a right, the righteous judge of the earth. Nothing else will matter. Money matters to a great deal to most of us, honestly, if we're honest. 
And we spend the rest of our lives trying to collect as much as we can to live comfortably, have a great retirement, have that car, have that next Apple product that comes out, wear the right clothes, have the right job. You can pile up as much fortune as you can, as, as large as a Bill Gates from Microsoft or Warren Buffett from Berkshire Hathaway or, or even Larry Page, the, the Google co-founder who has billions of dollars sitting around, but it won't get you into the door of heaven. You can work out and you can eat healthy meals and make your body fit and you might or might not extend your life for a few years. It's not permission to eat like me and eat bad, but the reality is even eating fit won't do you one bit of good when you stand before a righteous judge. It's a reality. You can devote your entire life to piling up good deeds, one good deed, one good deed after another, but it'll all be consumed in the burning heat of the presence of a holy God. You can enjoy the love of your family that cares for you deeply, but it won't matter before God. The only thing that will matter in that soon coming day will be, are you saved? That's all that matters. Are you reconciled to or made right with God? It's an urgent question because it has got to be answered personally. Each one of you have got to answer the question. The, the jailer answered it personally. What must I do to be saved? And Paul answered it as pertaining to both to him and his entire family. This is what must be done to be saved. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he would be saved. The same thing applied to his household. If each one of them believed, they will be saved. God's promises of salvation will be answered with yes and amen. That is what must happen. And thankfully, we read, and I'm sure it warmed that father's heart, each member of his household believed in Jesus Christ. Because there was, we have got to hear this, there is no group plan of salvation. There's no group plan of salvation. Each of us have sinned. Each of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, each of us needs to be saved personally. Coming from a Christian home will not do. Attending a church faithfully will not do. Working at a camp will not do. It is incumbent upon each person and therefore urgent to answer this crucial question. It's an urgent question with a, a simple answer, isn't it? Thankfully, even though it was a profound question, it is one for which even small children can understand the answer. My daughter, Grace Ann, age eight, she has responded to the gospel of grace. And as father, I can stand before the church and say, I'm presenting this child as she responds to the good news of Jesus Christ, as she shares her testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for her and to her and in her. And she can respond with confidence that, yes, I know. A child can answer this question. 
Paul did not say to the jailer, listen, what you need to do, buddy, you need to step out of your, your military career being a, ju- uh, a jailer, and what you need to do, really, you need to enroll in seminary. Minimally, three years, four years, if you go one of those really conservative ones. You need to take as many classes and advanced theology as you can, and maybe by the end of the semester, if you study hard, you will discover the answer. It'll be made alive. He didn't haul out 20 steps with the promises that if he worked hard at these things, if he followed them hard, maybe by the end of his life he would be saved. Rather, Paul answered the jailer with a simple question, with a simple answer. And then because of this, all things were new to him. Paul sat down with the entire household and even explained them in greater depth. So the biblical answer is, for for the question, how can I be saved, is believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You shall be saved. It seems almost too easy, doesn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend church, give faithfully, do this, do that. All these things, and you shall be saved. But this simple answer stands apart from all other religions that are in the world. They offer complex answers of how a person can work his or her way into heaven. His answer stands apart from many claiming to be Christian who say, get baptized, receive the sacraments, go to communion, give money to the church, do good works, and you may get in. Many pastors, Christian pastors in our day, who claim to be Christian would say, what is all this talk about being saved? There's nothing to be saved from. God loves everybody. Universalism. He would never condemn anyone. Just try to be a good person and you have nothing to fear. Paul's simple answer stands apart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Paul's answer and the results that we see in this, the jailer and his family imply at least four things. One, salvation is God's doing, not ours. It's God's doing. The verb, you shall be saved, is passive, meaning that the subject is being acted upon. No one be, can be saved by him or her herself by the amount of effort or sincerity. There's nothing that a dead body can do to bring itself to life again. No one can pile up enough good deeds to tip the scale in his or her favor. Paul didn't tell the jailer that he had to keep the Ten Commandments and reform his life before he can be saved. We can't save ourselves. It's absolutely impossible, but God will save everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus. There's numerous biblical pictures of people who are apart from God, and they show us how impossible, how impossible it is to save ourselves. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins. 2 Corinthians 4, we are spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 2, we have natural minds that cannot perceive spiritual truth apart from God's Spirit revealing it to us. John 8, 
We are enslaved to sin, unable to free ourselves unless the Son of God frees us. We have spiritual leprosy, and only Jesus can cleanse us. God alone can save a man, a woman, a child from their sins. And this is good news. If salvation depended on me and my work, if it depended on us, then maybe the best of us might have some hope of being saved. But that leaves the rest of us screwed, doesn't it? If it depended on us. But since salvation depends on an almighty, loving, and gracious God, not a weak man, but, and since God has sent his Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ, to be a Savior of sinners, and not just pretty good people, he came to save sinners, there's hope for everyone. Every person that you come in contact with, there is hope for that person. There's hope. Many of us are clearly too lost. There are many people who just seem absolutely way too lost way too lost for any human approach to save them. It seems impossible that that person would ever be saved. But none are too lost for God's mighty arm to save them. Salvation is also a matter of believing, not doing. And this is something that we've got to be careful about as we present the gospel as we present the gospel to children and adults and parents and friends and neighbors, it's a man, not, the gospel is not a matter of if you do these things, you shall be saved. You'll be right before God. No. Paul did not answer the question, what must I do to be saved? He didn't answer with something to do, but rather with someone to believe in. Believing is not a matter of human effort but rather of ceasing from our efforts and relying on God. Romans 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Saving faith then is a matter of ceasing from my own efforts to save myself and trusting in one who is trustworthy, Jesus Christ. But what does this mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it really mean? Well, back in January, my wife uh, and I and our two kids traveled to New York City. And uh, it was for a combination of denominational work and a combination of family travel and so let's say suppose I drove to O'Hare International Airport to inspect the planes. We could have watched the, the crews servicing them. We could have asked the, to see the maintenance reports and to make sure that all the planes have been regularly scheduled. We could have watched the crew put fuel into the tanks. We could have interviewed the pilots to make sure that they had gone through all the proper classes and had all the proper certification. We could have watched other planes take off and land safely. We could have stood there and 
and say what we believe these plane, that we believe these planes could fly us safely to New York, but it would never get us to New York. To get to New York, we had got we had to commit our lives to the planes. We had to commit our lives to the planes. Believing in Jesus Christ for our salvation is just like that. Intellectual assent is necessary and it's important, but it's not sufficient. You must commit your entire eternal destiny to Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope. Him and Him alone. You must rely on Him as the bridge to, to cross the chasm between you as a sinner and God as absolutely holy. Faith is trusting in someone who is entirely trustworthy. We have this idea that faith is just like, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just trust even though I don't know. No, faith is knowing that Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. He alone can save. He has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. He has come to satisfy the wrath of God upon humanity and shielded me from God's wrath. He has transported me from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of light of Jesus Christ. He has made me new. I'm a new creation in him. Therefore, he is completely trustworthy. That is what faith is. It is not just blind following. It is buying into lock, stock, and barrel that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. He is who he is. He's true. Saving faith relies on Christ alone. It's not you coming in and sitting next to the pilot saying, hey, I'd like to be your co-pilot and kind of show you the way around these, uh, all these gears and mechanisms and buttons and things like that because I really know what's going on. No. If, if you would do that, one, you'd be hauled off because of 9-11. Two, you have no clue. You have no clue how to manage this life, how to live this life apart from the one who will bring you safely to your destination. Trusting in Jesus is all that we need to do to be saved. And when you do that, it's not a matter that you, you'll be saved, but you shall be saved. It's a done deal, and it's done instantly. And even though this jailer had no religious background at all, even though he had never darkened the door of a church or read a Bible, he believed and he was saved in that very moment. Salvation is a matter of believing, not doing. But our faith must have a proper object. Jesus Christ. Paul didn't say just believe and you shall be saved. He didn't say believe in a higher power and however you conceive him to be and you'll be saved. He said believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. And since the jailer and his family had almost no knowledge about Jesus, Paul and Silas more than likely, when they, it said they spoke the word of the Lord to him, it probably meant that they were sitting down and discipling and sharing all the promises that are found in Jesus Christ, that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this was good news. 
Faith comes, and you need to hear this, faith doesn't even come from doing. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing and hearing through the words of Christ is absolutely crucial that you be wonderful, generous, kind people all summer long, your entire life. But faith comes from hearing. The children, the adults, your friends, the barista have got to hear. Hear the words of life. They've got to hear it coming from your mouth. Hearing brings salvation. They need to hear it. The reality is also we've got to be able to know how is a person truly saved? What is the evidence? I'm, I'm willing to bet that in this room we've got hundreds of years of some kind of spiritual history, right? Hundreds. Five here, ten here, thirty back there, a few more over there, a few less over here. But how do we know we are truly saved? How do we know true salvation always, always, always results in changed lives? Changed lives. If a person claims to believe in Jesus Christ, but his life or her life is not different at all, that claim is absolutely suspect. It's really easy on Sundays and at Camp Manitoba, I'm going to tell you, it's really easy to put on a phenomenal facade. Phenomenal. And there's even kind of a pecking order of who can be the most spiritual. Usually the chaplain kind of wins out. Then it's kind of the, you know, the, the worship guy back there kind of has this, woo, look at him. He's holy. He knows how to play the guitar in three chords, you know. <laughs> Maybe a few more. Four. Four. You know, the spirituality is, you know, then you got the supervisors and they're really special. And then you got the coordinators. Then, you know, actually it should be the rotational staff to get like a big crown, you know, living out in the cabins. Who does that? Especially when it's like 200 degrees out there. And if nobody's told you yet, it gets hot with no air conditioning. But the true evidence is when absolutely nobody is looking. And hear this, while nobody is absolutely perfectly made holy in this life, everyone who claims to believe in Jesus Christ will be different. Will be different. Salvation is not just a, a human decision. It is God imparting new life and changing our hearts so that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Salvation always results in new life and new, new ways of living. 
You see it in the jailer and his household. First, they were baptized after they believed. They identified with Christ. They came new. They identified with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And it signifies a break from your former life, your former ways of living, with all your ways of sinning, and a commitment to follow after Jesus Christ. They also, not only were they baptized, they immediately began to minister to Paul and Silas by washing their wounds and setting food before them. They became the most charitable, kind, ministering, mercy kind of folks that were out there. And this was a brazen military guy who had seen campaign after campaign after campaign and then put in charge of a jail with the worst of the worst. And immediately you see a gentle man washing wounds. I would have paid money to see that. I, I, I picture him bigger, bigger than Mike Moreau's. Just this huge, big, Italian kind of mafia-looking guy. Just ripped out. Just a brute. Kneeling down with a washcloth. Putting ointment on the backs of these two men. Being tender and gracious and loving. Evidence of a changed life. Also, his entire family rejoiced greatly because of their new faith. Salvation affects our emotions. Hey, white folks, get this. Salvation affects your emotions. Those Dutch folks out there, it affects your emotions. Okay? Do I hear an amen? Amen. Maybe I need to say it again. <laughs> Amen. You know, seriously, when Christ makes you new and he gives you new life, your eyes are open to the, the spectacular nature of Christ and everything he's done to you. He moves you from one place to another place. You become alive and he makes you joyful, happy. Have you ever walked into some Protestant churches and go, really? Where is the joy of the Lord? Later, when I'm on my deck, when I'm watching ball with my kids. No, when we rejoice in the Lord, our, our corporate worship gatherings should be happening. There should be joy. There should be passion. There should be tears. There should be laughter. It changes our salvation, affects our emotions. A short time before, this jailer was suicidal. He was ready to die, and now he is overflowing with joy. Overflowing. So the most urgent question, the most urgent question that has ever got to be asked of the world and for you this morning is, how can I be saved? God knows your heart this morning. And I know many of you, staff and Miss Uday family, you come from great backgrounds. Some of you need to respond to this question, and it's aching inside of you. 
What must I do to be saved? Because I'm done doing this Christianese thing. I'm done doing, falling under my parents' umbrella for salvation. I'm done doing the, the church thing to save me. I'm done adding up this activity and this activity and this activity, jumping through hoops. I'm done doing that. It's got to be, it's a profound question with a simple answer. And maybe this morning you finally need to respond to God's grace, his irresistible, intoxicating grace by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is truly trustworthy. Blake, throw up the next slide. Nope. Yes. My preparation, a lot of times I, I read old guys, dead guys. And this came from Alexander McLaren about this very topic. The outcast jailer changed nationalities in a moment. You who have dwelt in the suburbs of Christ's kingdom all your lives, why not go inside the gate as quickly? Some of you have been living in Christ's suburbs your entire life and just kind of enjoying some of the fun benefits of being near the kingdom. Some of you need to respond by rushing to the gates and responding to the gospel of grace and saying, Jesus, I believe. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow with ceaseless praise. Lord, they're yours. I'm done performing. I'm done being in the, the suburbs of your kingdom. I want to be in your family. And I'm responding to your grace today. If that is you this morning, Don't do anything else. Believe. Believe in one who is trustworthy. Believe in Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. If you have responded this morning, I want to encourage you, much like the jailer, he went public. He responded. He said, yes. He identified publicly by being baptized. By rejoicing. More than likely, this jailer in Philippi got connected with Lydia, who was converted also in this story. He probably got connected with the, the demon-possessed girl who had the spirit of of divination cast out of her, probably got connected with her, got connected with a body and made himself and his family known. Make yourself known. This morning we're going to, after we ask you your questions as we commission you for summer service, after we do that, we will be having communion together. 
if you have responded to God's gospel of grace, the good news of Jesus Christ, believing in him, I want to encourage you before, before you receive communion, make yourself known. Nathan's going to be playing, so it's going to be a little difficult. Meg, Meg will be available, I'm sure, if you need to. John Meskus, one of our deacons, will be available. I'll be available. If there's a brother and sister in Christ here, John, John, that you want to say, hey, I've responded for the first time. Make yourself known so that together we can rejoice.